Well, welcome again, and this evening <clears throat> we want to consider Luke 1, 26-38, the Annunciation to Mary. Now, as you look at uh, verse 26, how do you know that we have a new literary unit here? So because Gabriel's been sent to a different person, uh, you're saying we have a new unit. Okay, that's fine. It was Gabriel that came to Elizabeth, right? So now he's visiting another mother in Israel. Very good. Anything else? Okay, so a bit of an immediacy about it. Anything else? Sixth month, stating the date. Giving us a date. Okay, anything else? Or the place. The place. The place, yes. Um, where are we? Here. Here in verse Galilee, 26. in particular Nazareth. And in Nazareth of Galilee. And where were we in the previous verse? You mentioned west of Jerusalem. West of Jerusalem, where? No, we're at their home, right? Verse 23, Zacharias and Elizabeth have gone back home, and where is their home? Okay, let's turn ahead to verse 39. Yes, the hill country of Judea, or Judah, also repeated in verse 65. All right, so we have shifted scene because we've shifted location. <clears throat> we've come to an unknown, we come from an unnamed town in the hills of Judea to a town named, namely Nazareth in Galilee. All right, now where does the next narrative unit begin? This is... <clears throat> This is the narrative unit that we're into with the Annunciation to Mary. Where does the next narrative unit begin? And how do you know? Verse 39. Verse 39. Very good. March, go ahead. Back to the hill country. Yes. We are going from Nazareth in Galilee to an unnamed town in the hills of Judea. So, in verses 26 to 38, we're in Nazareth of Galilee, and we have moved out of a unnamed town in Judea before this incident, and we're going back to that unnamed town in Judea after this incident. So, this incident is sandwiched in Galilee in distinction from the Annunciation to Elizabeth and Zechariah, which was in Judah, and... It is to Judah that Mary will go to visit in verse 39. All right, so the scene shift, shift in location. But the other things that you pointed out are also interesting, uh, <clears throat> confirming the shift 
But the basic point is the shift in location. All right, so we come to Nazareth. What do we know about Nazareth? Well, first of all, let's take the geography of Nazareth. And you have a copy of a map there in your packet. If you'll take the map in your hand, we'll find Nazareth, which will be west of the Sea of Galilee. If you can see the bold Sepphoris name, the city Sepphoris, and look just south of Sepphoris, you will see Nazareth with a little square box around the dot. Now, I want you to notice the shading that you can see on your copy of this map because the shading indicates hills. And Nazareth was built into the slopes of hills in the valley of Jezreel, or north of the valley of Jezreel, which you can see just south of Nain and west or northwest of Scythopolis. You see V of Jezreel, that's the valley of Jezreel. Now, the valley of Jezreel is portentous, particularly from the book of the prophet Hosea. Chapter 1, verse 5 of the prophet Hosea. Hosea is instructed to name his firstborn son, the son born to him and Gomer, name him Jezreel. Why? Because in that valley, the power of the northern kingdom of Israel will be broken, broken by the might of the kingdom that broke the power of that northern kingdom of Israel. What nation was it that broke the power of Jezreel or the power of Israel in the valley of Jezreel? Assyria. What year? 722, 21 B.C. Very good. So the valley of Jezreel has a important historical significance, and Nazareth was actually overlooking this valley. Now, Nazareth was a tiny village, as Jerome labels it in the Vulgate. He calls it by the Latin word viculus, in distinction from opidum. The Latin term opidum is the usual name for a town But Jerome calls Nazareth a viculus, meaning a very tiny village. And this tiny village of Nazareth, which you can see in your map, was built into the hillside slopes facing east towards the warmth of the rising sun, which dawned above the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan Valley five miles 15 miles, rather, away. So the eastern slope was advantageous to catch the rising sun, and, of course, it would have been advantageous for the setting sun. It would have been a little cooler in the evening. But Nazareth faces towards the east. Last March, a house built into a cave on one of those slopes in modern-day Nazareth was uncovered by archaeologists and immediately the Internet went abuzz. In fact, some major media news programs went abuzz. They have found the house of Jesus, they said. 
Now, there is no confirmation that the ancient house in which Jesus lived and was raised was this house which they uncovered because, of course, there's no sign on the door that says, Welcome to the house of Jesus in Nazareth. But nonetheless, it is an interesting event and reminds us that this town was located on a hillside, even as this cave, which they uncovered, was built into a hillside. The town of Nazareth built on a hillside in which there were not only hills, but there were also cliffs, cliffs at the top of some of those hills. And it was over a cliff on the top of one of those hillsides in Nazareth that our Lord's fellow villagers attempted to throw him down, to kill him after he had infuriated them with his reading of the Bible. The story is told by Luke in chapter 4. Jesus read Isaiah 61 in the synagogue of Nazareth on the day of their customary Sabbath service after Jesus read the Bible to the audience, congregation, and declared that he himself was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 for Jew and Gentile alike, the furious crowd of his former neighbors and friends decided that this man Once a boy, this man should be worthy of death. And so they tried to throw him off of a cliff above the hills of Nazareth. The setting or location of Nazareth is significant for one major story in the life, the adult life of our Savior and Lord. Now you can see, if you look back at your map, that Nazareth is about three miles south of Sepphoris. Sepphoris is a city that Josephus dubbed the Jewel of Galilee. The Jewel of Galilee for its beauty. And the city which Herod Antipas, you can see that on your map you have the Tetrarchy of Herod Antipas written in diagonal fashion underneath Galilee and all the way down across the Jordan into Perea. This was the region which Herod Antipas ruled, and he made Sepphoris the capital of Galilee until 14 A.D. What happened in 14 A.D.? In 14 A.D., Caesar Augustus died and was succeeded by whom? Tiberius Caesar, those are the two Caesars that you've already heard about in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of the book of Luke. Tiberius Caesar comes to the throne in Rome in 14 AD, and Herod Antipas decides that he will build a new capital city. And where do you think he built it? And what do you think he called it? He called it Tiberius on the Sea of Galilee in honor of the emperor Tiberius. Now, it took him about three years to build that capital city between 18 and 20 A.D. That Sepphoris was then 
abandoned as a capital, though it was not abandoned as a city of importance in that region because Sepphoris was on an international trade route. An international trade route with merchant commerce in caravans flowing from Egypt to the south, down along the plain of Sharon and down the Gaza Strip to the south and north to Damascus. International caravan traders passing through Sepphoris and beyond to even central Mesopotamia. But none of those trade routes and none of those merchant caravanners stopped in Nazareth. Obscure, insignificant Nazareth was passed by by the trade routes which were north and west of her. Nazareth, tiny, obscure, insignificant Nazareth population during the time of Jesus' life, a mere 500. Obscure Nazareth. There is no mention of Nazareth in the Old Testament. Obscure Nazareth. There is no mention of Nazareth in Josephus, the Roman Jewish historian of the first century A.D. There is no mention of Nazareth in the Mishnah or in the Talmud. There is no mention of Nazareth, tiny, obscure Nazareth, anywhere except the New Testament. Inglorious Nazareth, unrenowned Nazareth, unimportant Nazareth. You remember what they said in John 1, 44 and 46, 45 and 46. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth, Nathaniel said? That's how important Nazareth was. That's how renowned Nazareth was. No good thing can come out of that backwoods. Hill, slope, viculous, tiny, obscure village. The unimportance, the obscurity of Nazareth mirrors the obscurity, the unimportance of the family of Joseph and Mary. Here... In this obscure, tiny village is hidden the very Son of God. Hidden from the murderous world as a child. Unknown to the imperial world as a boy. Obscured from the scribal and rabbinical world as an adolescent. And here in the hidden obscure, insignificant, untrammeled venue, Jesus of Nazareth is nurtured. Jesus of Nazareth matures. Jesus of Nazareth apprentices as a carpenter's son until 
until he bursts forth upon the stage of Nazareth's history, Galilee's history, Israel's history, Rome's history, world history. Jesus of Nazareth breaks out of obscurity with a majestically arresting annunciation, the kingdom of God has come amongst you. And I, Jesus of Nazareth, Lord God of that kingdom, I, Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son whom I am, I bring that kingdom to you. And I bring you into that kingdom. Dear brothers and sisters, that is no obscure, insignificant, unremarkable declaration. It is the declaration that turned the world upside down. And yea, still does. By the power of the living God and his beloved Son, through the intercession and work of the Holy Spirit. All right, now we have a pattern symmetrical structure in this unit. As you will note from your handout, we begin in verse 26 with the angel Gabriel being sent. Or actually, as verse 28 indicates, he comes into the house of Mary. And the Greek word, the Greek verb is eiserkomai. Erkomai is the Greek for comes. And the ice in front of it means to come into or to come in. And we notice in verse 38... The angel departs at the conclusion of this unit, and the verb for depart is another erkomai verb, to come up from, or to come away from, up erkomai. These things don't happen accidentally. You must understand. Luke has crafted this, in order to show the movement of the angel at the beginning and at the end as a framing device for the entire encounter. He's used the verbs intentionally to describe the coming and going of the revelatory messenger, angelic messenger of God. No, it is not an accident. It is intentional, wonderful, genius-style literary mastery and craftsmanship. Now, the next thing you will notice is that Mary's name appears in the next verse after the angel enters the scene. And Mary's name appears as the last name before the angel departs from the scene. So there is a Symmetry between the occurrence of Mary's name at the beginning and end of the unit, even though I will admit her name occurs elsewhere through the unit. But then we come to verse 31, 
<clears throat> the phrase, and behold, followed by the word conceive, which is parallel or matches verse 36, with the very same Greek phrase, and behold, followed by the verb conceive, this time in the past tense, also occurs. Now, you may say, well, yes, Mr. Dennison, but 31a is about Mary conceiving. And 36 is about the fact that Elizabeth has already conceived. So it's not parallel to the same person. And yet, we are talking about conception here. And we are talking about the mirror image of a supernatural conception in each case. A supernatural conception for a dead womb made alive with a child through a husband, Elizabeth's dead womb, Zechariah, the husband. And yet that supernatural conception is at the heart of verse 36. In like manner, there is a supernatural conception behind verse 31. Here, it is a virgin womb made alive with a child without a husband. These are mirror image symmetries. This line of behold, you shall conceive, or behold, your cousin has conceived, these are mirror image reflections of one another. Because the son of the virgin is reflected in the son of the barren elderly Elizabeth. We know what that reflection is because we've been told already that John the Baptist will be the forerunner. He will be, in a sense, the projection of the image of the one who follows because he will prepare the way for the Lord who will come after him in that way. Now, the next parallel or symmetry is in the word son. In verse 31, the son of Mary. I've used the small s because that's the way the translators have rendered it. But that is parallel to verse 35. You shall call him the son of God. And now... The son of Mary is the son of God and vice versa, a mirror image pattern. The symmetry then throughout this unit is a symmetry of mirror reflection, mirror, mirror imaging. And at the center, at the pivot point of the symmetry is the kingdom that this son of Mary, this son that will be conceived in her virgin womb, <coughs> This son of Mary will have a kingdom for which there will be no end. And in that line, verse 33, you will notice that the word forever and the word have no end are actually in parallel. So that we can say that forever means to eternity or having no end point in time. All right, so a very carefully 
designed pattern of unfolding the story of this enunciation in mirror imagery reflection. So there is a structure to the unit that we're examining, and that means that the narrative of the unit is carefully, rhetorically, literarily, and narratively arranged. Well, what's the center of the story? The center of the story is the characterization. The characterization of the son which will be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And yet we've already had a characterization paradigm for the son who is to be conceived in the womb, the once barren womb of Elizabeth. So let's take a look at a contrast or comparison between the comparison, between the characterization of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ. There are parallel elements in the characterization of the persons here. When we say characterization, their personalities, the role that they will play, how they come upon the scene of, history, of world history. <clears throat> there are a number of things which we can examine in order to draw attention to similarities and differences, parallels and non-parallels. We begin, first of all, with the angelic enunciation. Yes, Gabriel in verse 11, though he's not named in verse 11, but that is the angel who does the work of enunciation to Zechariah. <clears throat> the angel announces the conception of John the Baptist even as Gabriel announces the conception of Jesus. So, both of the major characters in the Annunciation narratives are the object of angelic enunciation. They are revealed from heaven in terms of their future existence, their conceptual existence. It is heaven that guarantees their origins. And that's the reason the angel appears with supernatural message and supernatural manifestation. Now, the response to the angel's appearance, as we might imagine, is that Zechariah was troubled, verse 12, and Mary was troubled, verse 29. It's, <clears throat> it's the same Greek phrase. <clears throat> they were a little bit bewildered, a little bit anxious, a little bit surprised. There are all kinds of uh, <clears throat> variations that we could suggest as to what that word troubled means. But it's interesting that the reaction was the same in both instances. So, parallel, the angel appears and the recipients are troubled. You have a question or comment, Mary? No, okay. Now, in order to dispel that sense of hesitancy, anxiety, Gabriel says to both of them, fear not. He says it to Zechariah in verse 13, and he repeats it to Mary in verse 30. These patterns of similarity are matching the pattern of duplication of enunciation narrative. 
In other words, Luke is not inventing anything here. He's recording how we have the same scenario with respect to the Annunciation to the parents of John the Baptist and to the mother of the Lord Jesus. Joseph is not in the Annunciation scene. Interesting. He's off stage. Interesting. He tends to be off stage in the entire four gospel corpus. Interesting. I don't have an answer as to why that's so, but I notice that it's interesting. All right. Now, the next uh, parallel similarity in the Annunciations is the agency of the Holy Spirit. In verse 15, John the Baptist will be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 35, Jesus will be conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit. The agency of the Spirit in the life of both of these individuals is extremely significant. There is a difference with respect to the poignancy of that agency, but that agency is present as a supernatural intrusion in both instances. John the Baptist to be full of the Holy Spirit from his conception. Jesus to be conceived in the power of the Holy Spirit from his conception. And finally, the parallel characterization of God's purpose for each one. The purpose of God for John the Baptist is the harbinger, the herald, the kerux, the one who proclaims the way, goes before the Lord. The purpose of Jesus is detailed in verse 32. There are a number of purposes or relationships to prophetic purpose that are described in that verse, and we want to look at them later on this evening. All right, so we have two enunciation scenes, two individuals supernaturally conceived. We are drawn to the parallels of the language and the events and the agency and the purposes of the individuals as Luke records them. In good Semitic fashion, he likes these duplicate stories or these stories which have parallel elements in them. And yet, Luke, like the rest of the church, early church, Luke, like the rest of the writers of the gospel, Luke, like the apostles, Luke, realizes that there is a difference. Difference between John the Baptist and Jesus of Nazareth. So we want to look at the non-parallel characteristics of these two narratives, of these two annunciation dramas. First of all, in verse 15, you'll notice that Gabriel says to Zacharias that the son that will be conceived will be great in the sight of the Lord. Great plus an attributive in the sight of the Lord. In verse 32, the angel says that Jesus will be great, period. No attributive. In other words, 
this child who will be conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary, this child will be absolutely great. Echoing Psalm 48, great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, a phrase which is echoed in other Old Testament Psalms and in other passages of the Old Testament. This is absolute greatness. This is greatness without an attributive qualification. This is greatness that John the Baptist does not have. This is metaphysical greatness. Greatness of absolute being. Great period. That is a greatness which is as different as greatness between a non-creature and a creature. So, we have here a reflection of a creator-creature distinction. Jesus has an attribute which belongs to the creator. Great is the Lord. Absolutely great. No qualification. No one like him. Now, the second non-parallel comparison comes in looking at verse 17 as compared to verse 43, which is beyond our pericope, but nonetheless is certainly part of the Annunciation pericope. You will notice that John the Baptist is a forerunner. We've already indicated that he goes before the Lord in verse 17. But the son of Mary's womb is the Lord in say. He is the Lord in himself. He is God the Lord, which is what Elizabeth says in verse 43. How has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? How does Elizabeth know that? Well, you have to come back next time. We'll talk about that. But at any rate, the name is there. This child who approaches her in utero, that child she knows to be the Lord, the great Lord, absolutely. No qualification. John the Baptist makes no such claim. Jesus of Nazareth does. Because John the Baptist is son of creatures. Elizabeth and Zacharias are creatures. That which Mary bears is a son of no creature. He is the eternal son of God. Without beginning... And without end. He takes human flesh. But that human flesh is not the essence of his being. The essence of his being is the godness of God. So that he is God the son. As he is son of God. Now the name John as we pointed out last week in discussion of the Theophorics in this first chapter, the name John or Yohanan in Hebrew means God is gracious. 
What does the name Jesus mean? Savior. If you ever forget that Jesus means Savior, just remember the Christmas story, Matthew 1, 21, where the angel tells Joseph that he shall call his name Jesus because he shall save his people from their sins. That's what Yeshua or Jesus or Jesus means. He is Savior. Yohanan means John needs saving. John needs grace. Jesus means I'm the one that gives the grace. I'm the one that has the saving grace. My name means saving grace or salvation to those who need it, need the grace of salvation. Right now, there are a number of other distinctions here which are unparalleled for which there is no match. There's no match in the Annunciation to uh, Zechariah's that there's a throne of David involved in this in his discussion. There's no reign over the house of Jacob in the discussion of John the Baptist's conception. There's no kingdom without an end in John the Baptist's conception. And so that those additional elements are without parallel, distinguishing then the son of Mary's womb from the son of Elizabeth's womb. There are parallels of characterization, but those parallels are as if we feature or we create a foil for the unparalleled significance of Jesus of Nazareth vis-a-vis John the Baptist. He is incomparable. He is singular that is, one of a kind, not even the correspondence of similarity in John the Baptist's case, where there is similarity, not even that can destroy or qualify the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is one of a kind. So that this characterization paradigm is an underscoring of the surpassing excellence of the person of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord, the being of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord, the role of the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth, our Lord. He is, in some ways, parallel in his characterization to John the Baptist, but he is infinitely unparallel to John the Baptist because he is very God of very God, true Son of God, and God the Son at once. Now, we haven't exhausted these uh, patterns of comparison, but we've given you enough of the flavor of them that you see, once again, the careful artistry of Luke in crafting these enunciation narratives. Yes, he's reflecting the historicity of the events, but he has carefully selected those elements which will draw John the Baptist and Jesus into a relationship, into a relationship of similarity, but at the same time contrast the dissimilarity between them because of the absolute uniqueness of Jesus of Nazareth, divine Son of God. 
Okay, any questions about... <clears throat> yes, David. Well, uh, this may not be the time, but I, if there's a better time, then fine, I'll defer the question. But uh, I would like the precise definition of the hypostatic. What, what is meant by hypostatic? Okay, the question is about the hypostatic union, <clears throat> meaning what was... Uh, adopted at the symbol of Chalcedon in 451 A.D. by the Christian Church, Universal Christian Church, <clears throat> meaning that there is a union between the divine nature and the human nature of Christ. The two are joined in a mysterious way, and yet so joined that there is no confusion of the two natures in the one person who possesses those two natures. So... <clears throat> Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, has a human nature and a divine nature. He has an essence of God nature, and he has an essence of humanity, or essence of flesh nature. And those two natures are, <clears throat> are hypostatically bound together. That is, they are united, but they are united in such a way that the flesh doesn't eat up the essence of the Godhead, the Godhead doesn't consume the essence of the flesh. How that can be without leaning too far one side or the other, I cannot answer. We can talk about those issues, but nonetheless, that is the confession of the church because it is the testimony of Scripture. Here we are. There's a testimony of the conception of Jesus of Nazareth who's going to take flesh from the womb of the virgin. There's no other way he could have gotten it. He has to take it from her flesh. Born of a woman, Paul says. Okay? So... He is a man. He could be touched like a man. He had a human nature. That's certainly true from the New Testament. But he's said to be the Son of God. He's said to be the Son of God who has no beginning and has no end. So we have this divine nature and this fleshly human nature. And they're not schizophrenically divided. Okay? This is not a bipolar Jesus. Okay? They are united together in one person. The person of the Son of God Theanthropic, God-man, God-man, the two together in an inseparable union, and so remains even today. He has flesh, he has, his, he has his human nature and his divine nature still bound hypostatically, joined together in union, and sits at the right hand of God, glorified in that hypostatic relation. Now, that doesn't answer all the issues about the mystery of that union, but nonetheless, that's what the church has meant by that combination because the scriptures indicate that he's God and man. Two natures in one person. That's, that's uh, the short three-minute answer. You're welcome, David. Now, Randy... Isn't that what Paul means when he says great is the mystery of our faith? Isn't he alluding to something like that? He could be. Um, it's hard to know exactly what he's saying there because he's not talking. He doesn't elaborate on it. He could be talking about the mystery hidden from the ages, which is the revelation of the salvation of the Gentiles and the fullness of the, of the purpose of God in sending his son into the world. But it is also conceivable he could be talking about the mystery of the Godhead. All right. Yeah, yes, Marge. The time for our break, but I'll take one more. Well, you, you 
mentioned that it's strange that Joseph was kind of left out of the investigation. But Joseph was visited by an angel in a dream. Yes. In Matthew's Gospel, he is present. That's correct. Is that not part of the investigation? I don't mean to minimize that, but then Joseph essentially drops out after they come back from Egypt in Matthew's Gospel. Joseph drops out here after the third chapter of Luke's Gospel. It's a very interesting thing. One of my personal ideas is that Joseph probably died before Jesus was an adult. He's out of the picture because he died before Jesus came to his public ministry. Mary is alone in the Gospels when Jesus meets her. Joseph isn't there. So Joseph, I think, is gone. Yes, there are other children. Yes. No, no, no. I'm not taking that ignorant doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary because, of course, the New Testament talks about his brothers and sisters. We've got two epistles by two of his brothers. Okay, take a break. Now we come to verse 28, page 2 of your handout, and the word hail, which is the first word uttered by Gabriel to Mary. Hail, is this a term of veneration? a word of adoration, a worshipful greeting. Or if that is true, if it is a word of veneration, adoration, or worshipful greeting, would that not be blasphemous? Think about it. An angel worshiping a creature. A messenger from the very throne of God where all the angels are conformed perfectly to the first commandment and greet in worship, adoration, and veneration God triune alone. A messenger from the very throne of God where angels and archangels bow down only and solely to God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Surely no angel from heaven's glory, no angel who bows before God alone forever and ever, would offer a greeting of worship to a human being, a sinful human creature. Never. It would be the height of blasphemy. Now this little word, hail, is a common greeting. It is an ordinary salutation. The New Testament itself indicates that that is the case. The New Testament itself indicates in the opening to the epistle of James, 
to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad, greetings or hail. And the letter from the Council of Jerusalem to all the churches of Christendom, the apostles and elders to the brethren from the Gentiles, greetings, hail, Acts 15.23. Hail here in Luke 1.28 is the equivalent of greetings or hello, as we observe in James 1.1 and in Acts 15.23. Now, following the word hail, in that verse, we have the phrase favored one, as it's translated in the NASB. Will you notice the passive voice, favored one? Mary is the one who is passive. That is, Mary is receiving God's favor or grace. Mary is not actively producing or generating God's grace or favor. The active producer of the favor or grace Mary receives is God. God alone. Is Mary favored because of her good works? Is Mary a recipient of grace because of her good deeds? Is Mary graced by God because of her merits? She earned God's favor by being what? Sinless? Born without original sin? Mary merited God's favor because being the mother of Jesus would enable her to help save sinners. She is without original sin like he was, so her works of obedience to God's law, like his works of obedience to God's law, were worthy of, deserved, merited blessings for sinners like his works did. Is that how we reason? But that would make Mary the active agent here, would it not? And yet, you saw the words, she is passive. That would make Mary the active dispenser of blessed favors, even gracious blessings based upon her active merits her active works, her active deeds, her worthiness, her deserving, her active earning. But the text says she is passive, not active. The text says she receives favor. The text says she receives grace from the only one active in giving grace. God gives her the gift of grace because God bestows the gift of his favor upon her. She passively receives what God actively bestows. The text says nothing about her merits 
earning this gracious favor. The text says nothing about her being without original sin so as to be worthy of this gracious favor. The text says nothing about what she does to deserve this favor. The text says nothing at all. On that question, the text is as silent as, by grace are you saved, not of works, it is a gift of God. No works there in that passage in Ephesians 2.8, no merits there, no earning God's gift there, no absence of original sin there. For the context of that passage in Ephesians 2 says we are dead in trespasses and sin. We are dead in original sin. We and all mankind, Mary of Nazareth included, are dead in sin by nature. Mary of Nazareth was born a sinner, dead in her trespasses and sin. She was born needing the work and benefit of the very son she conceives. She needs what the name Jesus means. She needs salvation from sin, from the Yeshua she bears. Jesus needs to save his mother from her sins, just as he needs to save any sinner from their sins, from their original sin. Mary, too. From their actual sin. Mary, too. From their demerits. Mary, too. From their deserving of damnation. Mary, too. From their earning the wages of sin. Mary, too. From their being worthy of hell fire. Mary, too. The passive voice here puts the lie to all the blasphemy of Mariolatry. God acts, Mary does not. God does the deed, Mary does not. God gives the unmerited grace, the undeserved grace, the unearned grace, grace to the unworthy, Mary too. God does it. Mary does not do it. But the Latin Bible... The Vulgate reads, Have, which means hail, gratia plena, full of grace. Hail, full of grace. That phrase, full of grace, gratia plena, is not in the Greek text. The Greek text, kikaira tomena, is a passive participle. It is a substantive. It means, as the New American Standard translates it, favored one, or one who has received God's favor or grace. We've already run through an explanation of that very thoroughly. The Vulgate thus gives the impression that Mary is gratia plena, a reservoir of grace. It's not in the text at all. It's been added in by the Vulgate translators. So full is she, according to the Vulgate, <clears throat> that she can dispense or pour forth or grant grace from the full reservoir of grace in her obtained by her merits, her originally sinless 
merits. That is not what the inspired text says. There are also versions which contain, and you can see it in the New American Standard margin, blessed are you among women. Now, this phrase is not in the oldest manuscripts of verse 28. Well, then how did it come to be copied in here? Well, if you turn ahead to verse 42, you will see that that's where the verse appears. It's what Elizabeth says to Mary when she comes to visit. Blessed are you among women. Even the King James Version contains this addition, but without the support of the oldest manuscripts. This phrase, blessed are you among women, does not appear in verse 28 until the manuscripts dating after the 5th century A.D., that is, after the 400s A.D. But there is a codex of virtually the whole Bible called the Codex Sinaiticus, which dates from the 4th century A.D., from the 300s A.D., and that Codex Sinaiticus does not have that phrase here. Thus, the translation of Luke 1.28, which reads, or is recited, Hail Mary, full of grace, has no basis in the inspired text. The inspired Greek text says, Hail Mary, favored one. Randy, thanks for your patience. Who wrote the Jerome. Jerome. They're translating the Greek word that way, but the Greek word doesn't mean that. The Greek word is a passive. It's a passive participle. So they've added it in. So they mistranslated it? They actually mistranslated it, or they intentionally added something to raise your opinion in the estimate of the readers. Also, you made the point that blessed are you among women. That did not appear in the original. Of, of 128. It appears in 142. Uh, now, that would seem to me not to matter because blessed also is a passive word. Well, no, no it, 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 it doesn't matter essentially because it still appears later on in the text. It's, it's something which is said about her. <clears throat> but my point is by reading it in here, you're attaching it to the initial words of the rosary. And Mary, full of grace. Yes. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Pray for us now in the hour of our death. Pray for our sinners in any hour of our death, etc., etc. I mean, you can turn on the radio, you can listen to it being said 24 hours a day over and over and over again. So, the, the, the point here is to indicate that that prayer or statement of recitation does not have any basis in the text of Luke 1.28. It is an importation into the text, which is defended by the tradition of the veneration, adoration, and actually worship of the Virgin Mary by the cult of Rome, called Mariolatry, the idolatry of the Virgin Mary. Yes, David. If Mary was the product of an immaculate conception, 
she wouldn't have had holes in nature and she wouldn't need a state. Is that what the Catholic She would only need saved for any venial sins she happened to have committed by some process of imitation or mistake or something else, but not anything arising from her original nature. So she has that double benefit according to their doctrine. She is born without original sin. She is born immaculately. That is, she is pure. All right, now, in conclusion, this narrative unit, the Annunciation to Mary, is not really about Mary, is it? It's about the child. It's about the son she will carry. This unit is about his name, Jesus, and his titles. So we move on to examine some of the titles of our Lord, which are excuse me, revealed here as indicative of his character, his person, and his redemptive historical purpose. That brings me to verse 31, in which I'd like you to observe a pattern of similarity, in fact, a virtual replication in which Gabriel says to Mary, you will call his name Jesus, and there you have the Greek phrase, kai kaleses to onoma autu yesun, which brings to mind the LXX. What's the LXX? Anybody? It is the Septuagint. And what is the Septuagint? March? Yes, and what is the translation of? Bible? What Bible? The Old Testament. The Old Testament? Yeah. The Old Testament, that's all it is. Translation of? The Hebrew Old Testament, the Greek. Into Greek, that's correct. So the Septuagint, supposedly by a group of 70 translators in Alexandria, Egypt. The Septuagint is a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek. And so there you can see the Greek of Isaiah 7.14, which is the prophecy of the coming of the Lord's Messiah. And you see exactly the same Greek except for the name. The last word in the second line is Emmanuel. But as you learn from plane geometry, quantity is equal to the same quantity or equal to one another, right? So the rest of the Greek is, is exactly alike. So there are, there are the same quantities. You shall call his name Jesus in Luke 1.31, Emmanuel in Isaiah 7.14. So we're going to do our plane G theorem conclusion. Quantity is equal to the same quantity or equal. We're going to put an equal sign between Yesun and Emmanuel, because they're equal to the same thing. You shall call his name. 
exactly duplicated. All right, so <clears throat> Jesus means fill in the blank. We've already answered this. Savior. So you can fill in the blank with Savior. Emmanuel means what? God with us. You can fill in the blank. All right, now, the word Jesus is salvific. It has a salvific aspect or function. What part of systematic theology, Professor Sanborn, is salvific? Soteriology. This is a soteriological term, okay? Jesus, Savior, is a soteriological term. S-O-T-E-R-I-O-L-O-G-I-C-A-L. Soteriological, from the Greek word for Savior, soter. So we made a study of salvation, soteriology. All right, so salvific is a soteriological term. Jesus is a soteriological term. What is Emmanuel? Well, I've invented a word. It's a deity-ic term. See, I have to have something that rhymes with salvific. And I exhausted, <clears throat> I exhausted my thesauruses and everything. I couldn't come up with anything which would rhyme with salvific. So I invented deityic. Theologic. Theologic. Well, not quite, because I want something that's going to rhyme with soteriological now. So what am I thinking about that rhymes with soteriological? It has to do with deity. No. My word I throw around all the time. Ontological. Ontological. Because he is God with us. But he's not merely God, you know, in his presence. He is very ontological deity. He is Emmanuel. He is God himself with us. That's an ontological category. Now, in a few minutes, I'll say why it's important to uh, observe this and actually to believe this. But I'm, I'm keeping my uh, categories parallel. Ick and all. All right, now, the remarkable thing here is to notice, of course, the high being of Christ. He is a Savior, yes. But he is a Savior who is God with us. He is a soteriological being who is ontological in his being. And the lineup of those passages shows you that. If you read the book, you can see it. You can line it up. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that Jesus of Nazareth is deity. He is very God of very God. He is ontological God. All right. Now, there are a number of other qualities of Jesus here which are listed in a series of concatenated characteristics. <clears throat> now, they echo 2 Samuel 7, particularly verses 8 to 16. If you know 2 Samuel 7, that is the covenant that Nathan 
brings to David when David asks to build a house for God. And Nathan informs him that he will not build that house, but that God will build his house. That is David's house. And so you have this precious covenant with the house of David, a lot of the phrases of which in chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, verses 13 to 16, are repeated or re-imaged in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 to 33. Now notice I've underlined the terms that repeat themselves in Luke's characteristics of Christ. God says, The Son of David shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Now that language is being repeated here by Gabriel to Mary. In fact, very phrases, the exact same phrases of that language are repeating themselves, and I've underlined them. First of all, in verse 32, Gabriel says that the son that Mary carries will be great. We've commented that that's an absolute quality. I didn't put verse 9 of 2 Samuel in the quotation above, but it occurs In verse 9 of 2 Samuel 7, he shall be great. The son of David shall be great. He is a majestic person. Great, absolutely. Now, the concatenation comes into play when we notice how the rest of these qualities or titles are listed in Luke 1. Notice the repeated and conjunction. The Chi clause or the Chi conjunction in Hebrew, in Greek rather. And he will be the son of the most high. And he will, the Lord God will give him the throne of his father. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. And his kingdom, this concatenate, this chain linked connection of these wonderful characteristics of the child that she's going to carry. All right. So the greatness absolutely is his majesty. His greatness as great as the Lord, who is majestic in that greatness. Son of the Most High, that's his ontic greatness. That is, his ontology, his deityic greatness. He is very God. Son of the Most High. The Son of the Most High must be as high as the one who fathers him. He can't be less. He can't be inferior to him. He is his son. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. This is the messianic aspect of his character. In other words, he's coming as the anointed of the Lord in royal majesty to defeat the enemies of God's people. Chief enemy of which is Satan himself and the sin by which Satan binds us unto death. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. That's not messianic. That's patriarchal. 
So, this promise, as it's repeated in Luke 1, carries the, the fulfillment or the character of the son that Mary carries beyond the house of David, back into the more remote history of redemption, back to the to Jacob, to Israel, to the new Israel, to the eschatological Israel of God forever, because that's what the promise intended to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob meant in the first place, that they would be a blessing to the nations forever. So their seed would be Galatians 3. And finally, his kingdom shall have no end. It is an eternal. In other words, Gabriel says this promise, which is the accomplishment of the covenant made to David in 2 Samuel 7, goes back beyond David. It goes back beyond David to the first patriarchal promise. And it goes back beyond the patriarchal promise to all eternity. This promise is rooted in the nature of the person who is conceived in your womb. He is an eternal person with an eternal character, with an eternal purpose and an eternal destiny. From eternity to eternity because eternity is in him by nature, ontologically. Summarizing then, promises to the protological David are yea and amen in the eschatological David. Second Samuel 7, 8 to 16 is pledge and prophecy duplicated in Luke 1, 31 to 33 as pledge fulfilled and prophecy accomplished. But note the unparalleled symmetry between the protological David and the eschatological David. David's son is son of God by adoption. He shall be my son. I shall be his father. I will adopt him as my son. God's son is son by nature, by essence, by substantia, not by adoption. David's son is son of God by function. He functions in an adoptive sonship relationship. God's son is son by ontology, by very essential and substantial being. There it is an unparalleled feature or facet of the difference between the protological and the eschatological David. So we leave these duplicate enunciation narratives which reveal the conceptions of John the Baptist and Jesus the Christ with this final dissymmetry. This final dissymmetry. The ontological son of God's conception in time and space history is without parallel. It occurs for the first and only time in the history of the world, in Nazareth of Galilee. 
the ontological Son of God conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary without a man's agency is without parallel. It occurs for the first and only time in the history of the world in Nazareth of Galilee. What marks the conception of Jesus of Nazareth, ontological Son of God, is all, all occurring for the first and only time in the history of the world. He is sole, unparalleled, one of a kind, ontological Son of the ontological Father by the agency of the ontological Holy Spirit. His life breathes supernatural. His life is of the essence of who he is, a supernatural being. As B.B. Warfield said, without supernaturalism, you don't have Christianity. You've got liberalism, you've got social justice, you've got some other kind of ridiculous notion, but you don't have Christianity. All right, so take the virgin birth out of the story. What have you got left? You've got a man conceived by another man and therefore subject to that same man's foils. He can't save you. Can't save you. I don't care what kind of a moral crusader he is. I don't care how good he is. I don't care what kind of virtue he possesses in your estimation or whether you think he can lead you into great and glorious things. He cannot save you from hell. It's going to take God to save you from hell. And God sent God, his son, to do that supernaturally. Modern Christianity, even much of modern Reformed Christianity, has forgotten the supernatural. Because they're too busy kissing up to the natural accomplishments and popularity of this world. And on the floor, littered amongst the rubble of their failures and the money that they have wasted, on the floor is the supernatural deity of the ontological Son of God. Even in the churches that have the Athanasian Creed, one of the most glorious creeds of Christendom ever written, even the churches that have it don't read it. It's too long! And the other churches, which claim to be great Trinitarian defenders of orthodoxy, don't even have it. And if you try to read it, it's too long! All right, enough of my soapbox. Do you have any questions? When did Jerome live? Uh, 5th century, 400s. After Augustine? He's a contemporary of Augustine. Okay. I prefer Augustine. Augustine. He wasn't born in Florida. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm teasing you. Augustine or Augustine is acceptable because it's pronounced both ways. But the proper pronunciation of the Latin, in my opinion, is Augustine. Accent on the second syllable. Dave or Scott. Since he mentioned. Jerome. Did you check by any chance that the old Latin has the same thing that Jerome put in? Did I? 
does the old Latin, to your knowledge, have the same thing that Jerome put? Oh, the, the, the Venus Italia? No, yeah. no, I do not know. I don't have a copy of the Venus yeah. Italia. But I do have a copy of the Vulgate. Right. Uh, Bob, you had a question? Well, I was just going to say for those that are interested, the Athanasian Creed is in the Gray Hymnal on page 815. It's one of the three ecumenical creeds of the Christian Reformed Church. <clears throat> but, of course, you can't read it because they say it's too long and they won't be patient with it. I am speaking from experience. <laughs> All right, let's close in prayer. Oh, I'm sorry, Scott, go ahead. One other question. Uh, I know you, you addressed the issue of hail. I haven't come across this, but are there Roman Catholic theologians who specifically point to that as a worship category? Oh, yes. Because the object of hail, Mary, full of grace, is what? The worship of Mary through the rosary. Exactly what they do with the passage. Even their, some of their commentators will admit that. This is a prayerful greeting, quote unquote. It comes from Hail Caesar, probably, doesn't it? No, no, no. It, this, this Greek word doesn't have anything to do with Hail Caesar. It's a common, ordinary New, a Greek New Testament greeting. Cairo. But Cairo. the Romans use it to worship Caesar. Well, if they were speaking Greek, maybe they did. Now, the point is, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hello, how are you doing kind of thing. It's a common greeting. It's all kinds of uh, references to it in Greek papyri of this period. No, I'm aware of that, but I mean, the Romans took it to a different level, is what I'm saying. Well, if you're saying that the Romans, when they said Hail Caesar, were actually paying adoration and worship to him, yes, then that might explain why Hail Mary became a term of worship, the paganization of the Christian that's church. What, that's what I was thinking. Okay, if that's what you were saying, then, then I agree with you. But even that's at this point, it wouldn't have been a worship term to the Caesar because they didn't, Romans didn't regard him as a god. That wasn't practiced. Well, all. when they did, yes, it yeah, became. Later, yeah, later. Yes, it became. And, and, and type, it, uh, Caesar Augustus won't accept the, the worship in Rome, but he will accept it from the Eastern powers. But Tiberius will accept it in Rome. So from Tiberius on... Tiberius does accept it in Rome. Yes, from, from Tiberius on, to worship the emperor, the emperor cult becomes uh, public. Ty uh, Augustus Caesar kept it in the background because he knew it was too controversial. It was an Eastern superstition. But when, when, when the emperors decided, like Tiberius, when they decided it was too powerful a weapon to use... It was, in other words, not two. It was a very powerful weapon to use. Then, of course, it was very important to have the cult of the emperor. And if you didn't, you went to the to the Colosseum. Yes. And, and thinking about the Vulgate, you know, there's a common practice to translate the Greek New Testament like into English. There's many different versions. There's many different translations into English. Similarly, are there many different translations into Latin? The Vulgate being one of them. The Vulgate has been updated as the years go by. The Vulgate, the Novum Vulgatum, is the newest edition of the Vulgate, but it is based on the original version by Jerome because the Council of Trent declared that the Vulgate was an inspired translation, inspired by the Holy Spirit. So they, can't, they, they cannot cut themselves loose from it. Even when they have their modern English versions or their modern Greek versions, they still have to kind of hedge their bets because they know that the irreformable doctrine of the church is the inspiration of the Vulgate. So in the 
particular full of grace is inspired. Yeah, it's inspired. And of course, the Council, the, the Roman, the Council of Trent, the Council of Reformation, was taking that position on the Vulgate in order to say, well, you Protestants who are going back to Erasmus's New Testament text, or back to the original Hebrew, you're reading the wrong Bible. That Bible is not really inspired. The inspired Bible is the Vulgate. So, so you, you see, during, during the Reformation era, here are the Protestants saying, look, we're going back to the primary source, and the Roman Catholic Church is condemning the primary source. They're saying the primary source is not as important as the Vulgate translation. So the Catholic Church is saying there is no, there is no Greek tra translation that is inspired. What about the? What now, about today, today they will say that. They will say that. They will say that, but they're, they're, you know, they're crossing their fingers, or they, or they've got two sources now. They've got inspired Vulgate, and they've got inspired Greek and Hebrew texts. But it became, it became just too facetious to say that the primary Greek and Hebrew texts that had been recovered over the years were not the basis of the Vulgate itself. But that's their doctrine. If you read the first canon of the decrees of the Council of Trent, inspired Vulgate translation. Yes. <clears throat> Let's pray. Our Father, we do not take any pride in understanding the text correctly. We are humbled by its plain sense, that plain sense which has been determined and understood and expounded by our Protestant forefathers since the 16th century. And we grieve, how we grieve in sadness, for those deluded by a superstitious worship of the Virgin Mary, a worship that she would have rejected. Father, we thank you that we worship you alone and your Son, Son alone, by the power of the Holy Spirit alone. And our plea is that the grace that Mary received because the Son that she conceived was the author of that grace and the source of that grace even to her. We pray that that grace may come to us, born in us, conceived in us by your Spirit, that we too might receive your unmerited and undeserved favor through Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.